0: Welcome to Deep Matter. In this episode, we're talking about some of the ways COVID has changed how we view, experience, and even interact with art. Specifically, the collective or shared experience that can occur seeing movies, music, and other forms of art. We also talk about significant influencers in our lives and the importance of looking for creative inspiration outside of our normal sources. An example of which was a terrific collaboration between Brian Eno and David Byrne. Here we go.
1: Well, at the moment, yeah, I'm, try- I'm trying to get a bit of a jump on the year and um, rack up some videos so I can buy myself a bit of space, actually. So I'm doing, like, a, a whole portrait retouching series, mm. um, but hitting it in sections. I mean, I've-, I've sort of talked about it in other videos, but often you sort of gloss over it because you realise, like, oh, my gosh, this is an hour-long edit. There's no way I can p- do an hour-long video. So what I'm doing is breaking it up into, like, uh, a skin retouch video, an eyes video, a, uh, a features video, color and contrast, background, just separate videos like that and doing something that hopefully feels a little bit like a free course. But if I do that as well, if I, I'm, I'm trying to record them all in a row, it gives me like a bit of breathing space in terms of videos coming out, which is quite nice. Right. Because so uh, obviously I'm I want to get back to traveling and doing these documentaries, but with how nervous everyone is to do that sort of thing at the moment. I'm thinking it's probably only going to be spring where I can get back to that. So I'm trying to make sure that I have enough to go in the meantime.
0: How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, we, we uh, speaking of, of travel, we were just talking, Adrian and I were just talking about maybe doing a national parks trip in September, if we can work it out, where we would fly into Vegas and then do Zion, maybe Bryce, and then come down along the Grand Canyon to. Uh, Sedona, and then back up to Flagstaff and and back over to Vegas and out. Do one big 700-mile loop. That'd be amazing.
1: You guys do national parks properly over there?
0: Uh, We do. I haven't been to many, but uh, the ones I have been to have been pretty incredible. Mm. They're very busy now, though. Uh, And and people, they don't really respect the landscape, and they're far too crowded. Mm Mm-hmm relative to what they should be. So I don't know. We're kind of playing it by ear. Uh, we thought about maybe going in in May, but that's spring break or April or May. That's spring break for a, quite a few schools. Mm-hmm. Whereas September, if we can time it right, it should be when everyone has just gone back to school.
1: Yeah, good timing, yeah.
0: But you've got to get that sweet spot of between when people have gone back to school and when they're taking off to go look at fall colors.
1: So, yeah, that's true. Before it gets too cold, right?
0: That sounds good, though. Gosh, that sounds yes. like a great trip. Rent the Winnebago, uh, something like that. There's a company actually that Richard, Richard just left for uh, Lake Powell and Lake Mead yesterday or today, one of the two. I think maybe today, uh, and he ended up finding this place where you can rent a jeep, and it's got a roof-mounted tent included in the in the rental, and it's got oh, like a cool. refrigerator and a little pull-out. Uh, cooktop in the back so it's all set up for camping already and it's it's much less than renting a full rv if it's just two or three people oh yeah uh, and then it's more capable to get places it's less you know less yes. cost to to run it because it gets better mileage etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's what he's going with and i'm I'm eager to talk to him about it as soon as he gets back
1: that's what i did on my namibia trip a few years ago
0: I don't mm, know if you saw mm-hmm. that
1: video is I, I rented basically it was a I was a, I think it was a Toyota 4x4 of some sort. It wasn't a Land Cruiser, but it was something like that. Basically, like a, a pickup, like a double care pickup truck, but it had this big sort of metal box bolted on the back, which you could, uh, you know, house all your cooking stuff, had a shower off the side, and you climb inside and pop the roof. And then you've got a roof tent as well from the inside. Um, so I used that, but I didn't factor in the um, 47, 48 degrees Celsius temperatures during the day. Oh, my and, um, gosh. Not a lot cooler during the night. So basically what wow. you're doing is you're climbing up into a metal box <laughs> in that temperature <laughs> and pretending that there's any chance you're ever going to get any sleep. Right. And you're not just going to sweat all over a really thin camping mattress. So I, I ended up like for a couple of nights, I just lay on the back, um, the back seats of the double cab and had the engine running with the air conditioning on. Like, oh the my gosh, the night trying to stay cool
0: enough to actually get a little bit of sleep. It was ridiculous. It was oh, so hot. that sounds man. brutal. Yeah. yeah it was it's right. Like being in a shipping container. Exactly. It's
1: exactly what it's like. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Not fun. But yeah, mm. yours sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Well, hope, you know, we'll see. Um, you've got a book uh, six months out for Zion. Um, wow. I'm not sure about the Just others. I need in. to look into. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing wow. timed, uh, time. Well, to get, to get a camp spot, not to get in. That's another, that's another story. Um, and there are in Zion and, and I've only been a couple times, so I'm sure that if someone out there is listening to this, they can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, but the places that we, there are three spots that we really want to go to, uh, angels landing, which is you climb up and up and up. And, and then there's this little plateau that you, reach and it overlooks the entire valley if you google a picture of angels landing you'll see what i mean it's an absolutely spectacular view and then there are two canyon kind of based trails one's called the subway and the other one is called the narrows and the narrows you don't need a ticket for but i believe unless it's changed i believe the subway you still do need a ticket so you know it kind of depends on time of year and and park volume and things like that but Uh, Adrian's never been to Zion, so I would love to be able to do this and, and kind of see it through her eyes.
1: That's so cool. It does, it does still, I mean, I get why they do it, but it does feel so weird that you have to buy a ticket to nature. (laughs) Right. It feels like so weird. Yeah. There's this cool rock formation, but you go past the ticket office and you purchase it. It's it's just, it's not. Yeah. I mean,
0: but I would rather do that than have, you know, a thousand people all huddled around this thing. You know, it's akin to going to a museum and you're just trying to see this one painting and there are, you know, Seventy people standing around it. You know, it's but one of the reasons that the Mona
1: are in the Louvre isn't. Well, it,
0: but that's the thing, right? It's <laughs> it's one of the reasons we still have yet to go to the to the Louvre because yeah. it just it feels really strange to me.
1: Yeah, it's the size of a postage stamp on a wall, and you've got to see over the heads of two hundred people to see it. It's an amazing right. experience. Right, <laughs> it's transcendent, Jeffrey. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: I've got my selfie stick at the ready. Yeah, oh, God, it is. <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, I, I remember at the British Museum I went once, and it was similar. I can't remember what the piece was, but it was something everyone was crowding around, and and some guy like in front of me had his whole like. 12.9 inch ipad up in front of his face to take over his head so you can't you couldn't see anything but you could see it through his ipad it's anyway nice i'm like seriously not even a phone you're gonna stick your massive tv-sized <laughs> ipad that's the
0: way the pros do it right because yeah, it's exactly, you yeah. know bigger is yeah. obviously better so yeah, i'm not i'm not in the big leagues yet i'm still no a no no thing, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> i uh i was on our, our we were on our uh, evening walk with cooper last night we ran into actually no i think i was by myself nope i was by myself uh and i ran into our neighbor gary who's a, a librarian at the library of congress and he was telling me about a man ray exhibit that's at the richmond museum in virginia uh it, it's going through the end of the month and it focuses on his time in paris his portraiture specifically oh cool so i'm going to try and get down there i want to try and take the train down there to see it and on the 11th they're doing kind of a special event where they're showing some of his experimental films and some of his ex- the the uh his contemporaries like they're showing films by Cocteau and Duchamp um as this one-day kind of uh, celebration of of his work and the work of others so I, I i would love to go see that part but i don't you know again it's it's kind of balancing is that going to be a pretty crowded event and do i want to brave those kind of crowds or would i like to just kind of sneak in at either the beginning or end of the day, and and see the exhibit, and then and then away I go.
1: I'm I'm the same as you. Like I honestly, I d- I don't go to many live music gigs anymore. Mm-hmm. I just don't like the crowds. I don't like the space. It's not it's not a space I'm happy or comfortable in. And I also find I mean especially with music gigs this is a case. But the sound is always terrible because you're in an right. arena where it's bouncing off concrete walls in a big cavernous space. I'm definitely like, a, I'll, I'll get the DVD and watch it at home later. or wait for the streaming somewhere. Right. And I can just sort of take it in with decent sound and hear what's going on. Like I've just never, if if there's going to be any kind of crush at any event, I'm just, I'm a stay at home guy. I, I've never been, it's always put me off, which is a shame, obviously, because then there's a lot you don't see. You don't see the Mona Lisa, you know, because you just right, I, can't, right, right, right. I can't brave a forest of tourists, like trying to muscle their way towards seeing this thing. I just, I just rather stay away. I uh, even that's even true when I visit cities actually even if I've never been there I never go see the touristy stuff. Um and it's not because like I'm above that or anything like that. It's 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 a proper like oh gosh I've just got a a fear of crowds. I don't like it. Right. It makes right. me uncomfortable. So going to Rome for example I never went to the Colosseum. I've been there like four or five times, never, never seen. Well, I've seen it from a distance. I've never been into the forum. <laughs> um, I kind of walked past the Pantheon and I saw the queue and I thought, nope, keep moving. And I, I just right. hanging around the back streets looking at, which, which honestly is beautiful as well. I walked past the Vatican and went, nope, not doing that. Like, it's just, it's just,
0: it always puts me off. That kind of crush. I wonder going forward with the weight of the pandemic on us and even once it's behind us, what it's going to do for tourism globally? Will people get back to normal? Or I, I would imagine, anyway, for a pretty sizable percentage, that it's going to change. I mean, especially like the cruise industry. Can you imagine owning a cruise line
1: now? I've noticed they're really pushing hard to try advertise now, right? Try and get people back on them. But I think everybody is is uh, a little shy of that at the moment. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I I hope it does change things. I hope it. I hope it. I don't know. Maybe it'll just make them better organized. Mm-hmm. You know, so that if there are going to be crowds of people, you actually do start to limit numbers, so it's not such a mad crush. I mean, the, the classic example is like the football matches here. We've had famous football matches here where 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 a lot of people died because. People got so excited at the end of matches and they put fences up to stop people jumping on the field at the end that they'd rush forward and crush people up against the fence. Mm. Like, We don't need to do that. That's ridiculous that we're living like that. Can
0: you imagine? That is not a way to go, being crushed against (laughs) the fence at a football match. I mean,
1: just horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. I mean, there have been a few incidents like that in this country. And it's just, gosh, uh, managing crowds better and, and creating more space for people. Because I think, like, I'm not somebody who struggles with anxiety particularly, m- more than more than the next person. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for someone with like genuine claustrophobia or or real issues around anxiety in spaces like that. How terrifying that must be! And we we just make them very unfriendly places for people who struggle with that kind of thing. And I hope pandemic, at least this whole thing, one of the good things that might come out is like, oh, maybe we learn how to do that better. Maybe we let the maybe we let things slide a little too much beforehand, and we realize, oh, we, that's not
0: Entirely necessary doing it that way. Yeah, we went to the movies. I don't know, maybe a month ago now, and I was really edgy through the whole thing, Mm. if I'm being honest. Even though you know, it's it's you know the 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 seats are much closer, much further away than they used to be, right? Because now everybody's got the big reclining seats. Because you know, perish the thought of sitting upright for an hour and a half. Um, (laughs) But I was really tense throughout most of the film i i can't imagine at least now and and you know if i'm being honest the the movie going experience has been declining for me for years you know between people not being able to go an hour and a half without looking at your phone or you know having a half hour of commercials before you even get to the trailers before you even get to the like it's just you know it's such a big it's become such a big block of time you know do you go see a movie it's a 4 hour block of time now you know by the time you prep and drive over and drive on, I just I can't be bothered with it i'd rather wait 45 days or 30 days whatever the time frame is now that they're targeting between when it's in the theater and when it's on a streaming service i'd rather wait and just watch it in my house
1: it does kind of make me sad, though, doesn't it, you? Like, I, I do remember those movie-going experiences in cinema. Like, there was a real magic around going to cinema.
0: Yes, yes. Not to mention the collective enjoyment of it. You're, you're, you're seeing it with an audience. You're gasping. You're laughing. Yes. You know, all of that stuff. I miss it tremendously. But it's just not worth the trade-off because the experience has gotten so poor for me for the, over the past several years.
1: No, and I, I'm with you 100%. Like, I don't go that much. I think I've seen two films in the cinema this year. Uh, one of them was Bond, and one of them was June. And um, same, yeah. <laughs> same. There you go. I mean, that's th- those were the two that were really, you know, you had to make an effort, didn't you? Yeah, to go see those in the cinema. But everything else. But normally, I mean, I used to have a, I used to have one of these unlimited movie passes, mm. day, and I'd make use of that thing. I'd go see anything. I'd go see things I didn't really even want to see just to go to the cinema. But there's no way I'd think like that now. It's really changed. For me and I don't know, I don't know why because it's not just the fact that I have a nice TV at home, I, I, I think about it differently. I'm not sure, like, I, I, I feel different. I still remember. Do you remember a weird movie? Uh, it was called Um, The Ghost in the Darkness.
0: Oh, with uh,
1: Michael Douglas and Val, Val Kilmer? Kilmer. That's it. yeah, that's the one, yeah. Um, about the Lions of Savo and mm-hmm. like i mean i remember going to watch that and like i this is just one of those memories that pops up when it comes to cinema and i sat i was in a cinema in peter maritzburg in south africa uh which was my university town this was the, i think it came out around the time i was at university and i remember sitting in that cinema and there are some good jump scares in that in that film mm-hmm. with these lions especially at night. And there was one particular one. I can't remember which one it was, but I just remember this jump scare and the whole cinema went (gasps) at the same time. And then the whole cinema laughed at the same time at the fact that we all did that at the same time. Right, 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 right. It was such a lovely moment that we're all experiencing this together. Yes. It kind of broke the spell a little bit, but it was also like, it it turned it from like just a film to also a show, which was, which was really nice. It was really fun to have those experiences. And we, you know, we, we, I sit at home and watch most films on my own now, which is yeah. a bit sad. And I, yeah. I, I do kind of miss it. But you're right, something's changed. And I don't know, it's not just pandemic stuff. It was changing before that for me anyway. And I'm, yeah, it was. It sounds like it was. it was for you too. Yeah. But I, I feel like we, and I, I can only imagine being a filmmaker these days. I mean, the guys who are really still trying to champion the cinema, um, how difficult it must be. I don't, I don't know if anyone's worked out what's shifted in our consciousness. It can't just be nice TVs at home because that can't give you it, it that can't communal
0: be. experience. No, and and that's the thing that that I miss the most. I mean, it's the same thing I miss about, you know, not seeing theater or going to see art. You know, there there is something about standing in front of a piece of artwork and kind of looking at the person next to you and and they're looking at you and and you're both either appreciating it or questioning it or one person is feeling one way and the other and then maybe you 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 say something to that other person and then you know, you end up having a conversation with that person about this piece of work or about some other piece of work i miss that kind of thing and yeah. you know it, i feel like i was just kind of hitting a stride in being in dc and and being comfortable doing that in museums and then it all kind of fell apart and you know who knows how we're going to get back to that you know in the meantime museums and galleries are struggling. They were struggling beforehand with attendance. Yeah, yeah. And now I can't imagine again, like a, like a cinema owner, I can't imagine how you're looking at those and, and you know, what metrics are you using and what strategy do you have to bring people back in the doors? I have no idea how that even looks.
1: I don't know if you get them back. I, I mm-hmm. think you, I think we might be in a changing world now because, because like you say, it was changing before anyway. And this might just have been that sort of final nail in the coffin. We have to adjust after this. I don't think things like cinemas will go away, but I think they'll get smaller and more boutique now. Uh, And they'll be kind of there's a couple of lovely little art house cinemas in York, which are nice to go to. There's one called the Everyman Cinema, which has got this amazing face brick Art Deco frontage to it you'd absolutely love it and you go inside and it's uh it's not it's not chairs in rows it's sort of tiered seating but on each tier it's just a flat platform with a sofa and they're all different sofas
0: oh wow so
1: you just go and sit like that and they've got side tables and side lamps as well and you can also you can order food and drink and whatever so it's a nice kind of communal space watching oh, that's cool watching cinema which is really nice like those kind of things i think will be interesting enough to people to still go and also there is more space between people there as well um, but yeah, I think like the, the kind of really rammed close together, let's pack as many people in as we can and get thousands of bums on seats for particular films. I think that era is kind of over for cinema.
0: Yeah, well, and it's, it, I think it, it, it affects the type of movies being made too, doesn't it? I mean, the, the latest uh, Spider-Man, over a billion dollars in sales. So you can't tell me that that's not going to allow and, and maybe force the hand of these studios to double down on these kinds of movies because it's a numbers game. Yeah, and maybe there are only a half dozen films that come out at the cinema a year, and they're all going to be these giant superhero movies because that's apparently what people want to see in droves. I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah, and the fact that that's a lot of that stuff is moving to streaming and simultaneous release as well. Like it's it's really interesting how it's shifting. Yeah, I, I, the the good thing about the streaming thing, though, I reckon, and the fact that people are watching more at home is is I think more interesting stuff is being made because it finds homes on streaming platforms. Um, and oh, that, I, that's think so. yeah, like, I think so. Yeah, I think so. That's and that's TV and film. I reckon like there's a, there's definitely more diversity of of choice now in terms of what you can watch right. than there's ever been at any other time. And there seems to be somehow there seems to be more collective budget for things. I don't know that like, the quality of of things that's going out now uh, is is incredible. I mean, TV was yeah. never like that when I was. When I was, you know, even 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. There's no way. And now you, you're kind of watching stuff that's, that's proper cinema quality in every series that you watch. Mm-hmm. And you can sit at home and watch it. And, and there's more interesting stories being told, which is great. Because I think the problem with that blockbuster mentality is you tell the same stories over and over again. right? You just repackage right. them or, or right. keep the franchise going. And I don't know. I, I want new stories and characters. The best movies I watch are when I don't know who anyone is at the start you know, and then you kind of work it out as you go, because there's more to discover. You kind of know where, where every kind of cut and paste franchise movie is going.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or telling things in a different way. I mean, you and I were talking the other day about the, uh, the Joel Cohen reimagining of Macbeth. Mm. You know, you've got Denzel Washington, you've got Francis McDormand, but it's in black and white, it's square format, and still somehow it's made it into the theater. Yeah. In addition to streaming. I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. It's great. It's really great. Yeah. It's really great.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a real mixed bag, isn't it? Some good stuff, some bad stuff. I mean, as long as I think we're through the worst of the pandemic stuff, fingers crossed, hopefully, always a dangerous thing to say, but, but it seems like they managed to keep making things even through that. And hopefully it picks up on the other side. But yeah, I do, I do kind of miss those kind of, you know, eighties, nineties era cinema going experiences that uh, we'll probably never have again like that anyway. That era seems to have gone.
0: No, I don't think we will. Uh, and it makes me even more grateful to have grown up in that time mm. when that yeah. was a thing. I feel like, you know, and, and maybe everybody feels like they grew up at exactly the right time. I don't know. But I, I certainly do because I, I feel like in, the, in, in my lifetime, I've been able to see the analog transition to digital across almost every genre, you know, with, with, with film, yeah. with music, uh, you know, think about kids now. The, the an iPhone 13 is the lamest device they're ever gonna know. <laughs> <You> know they're, <laughs> they're never gonna know that little Mattel football thing that was just you know red LEDs on the screen, like <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, so it, I, I feel like there's been such an interesting, um, continuum that I've been able to witness being born both when I was and where I was, you know, that's the other part of it. Yeah. Hey, can I share something with you? Yeah. Hit me. Uh, I learned a new word. I'm reading uh, this, this book by Steven Johnson. I've been reading it for a while. I got distracted with a couple other books, but it's, it's that where good ideas come from. Remember I started that months ago, actually. Oh yeah. And then I got distracted by this book on grammar and punctuation. Then I got distracted by this book on Los Angeles and water and anyway. So I was reading this thing last night, uh, picked it up again, uh, and this word exaptation. Do you know this word? No. It's the idea of um, a a function, um, usually biological. In in this book, it's referencing biology. A function, uh, something other than what it was developed for through natural selection. And the example that that he starts with is this bird called Archaeopteryx. I hope I'm Mm -hmm. pronouncing that right. And it was like the first bird, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the example was this the thing was covered in, in feathers that were used for not flight then, but, but insulation to keep mm-hmm. these creatures warm. But in Archaeopteryx, the, the leading edge of the feathers formed differently. They, they formed a different shape and they created lift so this thing could glide. And so and he goes on to, to cite a number of, of examples where, you know, sort of one thing crossed over and allowed some other thing to happen. And the entirety of the book is based on some an idea called the adjacent possible. And but but it got to this. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. I'm not just rambling incoherently, although I am rambling incoherently, but I am trying to get somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I'm just excited, it. Sean. I'm killing, excited.
0: Killing <laughs> And, and one of the examples that he that he talks about is uh, this Brian Eno record, which I used to have the cassette of and I had completely forgotten about it. It was a, a record called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And the reason that it was that it was so interesting, at least to me, I'm a I'm a big fan of Brian Eno, but it was a collaboration between Brian Eno and David Byrne. And Brian had just moved from London to New York. and was, uh, kind of struck by radio in New York, particularly AM radio, which he found fascinating because he started listening to all these evangelists and preachers and, and, Mm. you know, and he started recording these things and making loops out of these sermons Hmm. and, and then creating, you know, music along with it, uh, Here, let me, let me, can I just read a little bit of this for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the late 1970s, British musician and artist Brian Eno moved to New York City for the first time. He took over a flat in a converted townhouse in the heart of the village. The city was at the height, or more like the nadir, of its rioting, son of Sam, bankruptcy, and uh, madness. Still, having spent time in 1970s London and Berlin, Eno was well acclaimed to urban anarchy. In fact, the most jarring contrast, hold on, to his European past was a turbulent mix of voices on the radio. After years of listening to the somber, professional voices of the BBC, something which you know all too much about, right? <laughs> our, our friend Neil James, which, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't call Neil somber. Neil's got a great voice. He's,
1: he's not somber, but he's definitely got a little bit of the BBC in him. He, yeah, he does know, have the BBC. That, like, professional polished edge.
0: Yeah. Uh, the outlandish rants of American radio seemed to Eno like a new universe of insanity, and so he started recording them. Like many experimental musicians at that point, Eno had been exploring the possibilities of using tape loops as a musical instrument. The tape recorder was always the instrument I felt most comfortable with, he once said in an interview. Keyboards after that, with bass a distant third. The Beatles had reserved the longest track on the White Album for Lennon's Tape Loop Collage Revolution Number no. 9, And the proto-synthesizer Mellotron, developed in the mid-60s, had separate tape loops set up to be triggered by individual keys on the keyboard. Mm. But none of those experiments had ever really employed the spoken voice as a harmonic or percussive element. The drones and murmurs of Revolution No. 9 were, after all, barely musical by traditional standards. But Eno's hours with the evangelists and anarchists and the shock jocks in Embryo had lodged these voices in his head, and he began work on a collaboration with David Byrne. He started a toy with the idea of exploring their musical personalities. The result was my life in the bush of ghosts. And it goes on and on and on. And so I, I, and again, one of the things about streaming, you know, I pulled it up on Spotify and started listening to it again. And I was like, oh my God, I was taken right back to the first time I'd heard it. And it was just fascinating that, that here's this thing that, that, you know, these, these evangelists that were used to promote the word of God, that. Eno kind of remixed and repurposed for his own ends, you know, in making music. And it just got me thinking about pulling inspiration from different places for our own work and how how sometimes we get we get myopic. Uh, photographers tend to only look at the work of other photographers, musicians tend to look mm. towards the their, you know, musicians in their genre. Rare are those musicians who, you know, look to completely different genres for inspiration. So yeah, it, I just thought it was interesting and and wanted to bring it up. I thought you might have some interesting insight into it.
1: I mean, it's 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 perfect for you. I mean, this hits you right where you are, isn't it? Because I mean, you are like creating art, including found ephemera. So you're not mm. looking necessarily at uh, um, other paintings to paint with. You're looking at redacted documents or right. or or Cold War era propaganda art or, or or any number of other things that you're cutting and pasting into your work um to kind of include it as well so i mean i mean it it really is your wheelhouse your work is a collection how do you think about it with 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 your work how how do you kind of go out and sort of pick what you want to include is it like a is it like just opening yourself up to that world and collecting as much as you can and deciding on the day like how do you, how do you physically do it
0: most of the time yeah you know, I, I have this, this growing collection of, of physical and digital sources and it really gets assembled in a, in a variety of different ways. Sometimes I, I try to say something and I try to, to have a through line or a narrative. Other times I just, I could get lost in those kinds of documents, mm. you know, and recently the Biden administration released a bunch of redacted documents around the JFK assassination. Oh, cool. Not everything uh unfortunately but they released a massive portion of that right and i just pored over some of this stuff and and i find it fascinating i find i find it fascinating from a content perspective and i find it visually fascinating because these are digital scans of redacted documents some are faxes so you get all of these really kind of impossible to reproduce textures that happen because of the limitations of the technology that they were using to, to copy and transmit and, and disseminate and, or distribute rather all these documents in the first place. So I find it fascinating and, and really inspiring on a number of different levels. And then I try, I try to figure out how I can reproduce some of those things so that there's, there's continuity between the source material that I'm using and my own contributions to whatever that piece might be so that it doesn't look like I just, you know, found this thing and stuck it on a panel and then painted around it. I want there to be this sort of visual continuity between everything. So the entirety of that piece looks like it came out of the same place.
1: How do you store all this stuff?
0: Uh, The, the physical things I have in um, semi-clear, those big plastic tubs that are, They're not, they're shallow. So like Uh they're, they're, they're wide enough to, that I can get two, two stacks of like life magazine. So a a trade magazine, what is that? 11, 11 by 17, something like that. Yeah. And then I just, I, I have like a, a, a packing sheet, a packing list inside that, that tells me what's inside of it. And then I have on the outside, they're labeled in broader terms, like, uh, you know, Life Magazine, early 1960s, Life Magazine, mid 1960s, Life Magazine, late 1960s, Look Magazine, early 1960s, whatever it is. Mm. And I just have those. And I think that came from, wow. Okay. All right. So this is kind of cool. Um, I think the reason I do that is because of the impression that, my English teacher in high school made. (laughs) So my favorite teacher of all time was a guy named Alphonse Kennison and everybody called him Ken. And he was, uh, this incredibly flamboyant, uh, English teacher, Southern gentleman. Uh, I think he went to Tulane, um, family was, was incredibly wealthy. Uh, he taught because he, he just, he loved it. He didn't need the money. And, and, you know, there were attempts made on his life by other family members who wanted his inheritance. And, you know, he would, he, he would come to school in like full length, you know, mink coat with Gucci loafers and little mm -hmm. Gucci handbag. And I mean, he was that guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely adored his classes. He taught me more about about language and he was he was the one who really instilled in me a, my love of words my love for language and he could never find a single text or a single book that contained everything that he wanted to teach so he would go through and and collect and hand type all of the stories the short stories whatever essays whatever written material he wanted us to learn he would hand type it and then run it off, mimeograph, remember those, the purple kind of pinky yes. ones that yeah, everybody yeah. would smell. Uh, and he, he had them cataloged in boxes all over his classroom and he knew exactly where everything was, uh, but nothing was in um, a, a textbook. So he, in essence, curated what he wanted us to learn himself rather than relying on an editor or, or some sort of standard curriculum. And it was just... Fabulous! It, I, I I took two semesters with him, and just an incredible person. He sent me Christmas cards every year until the year he died, and we kept in touch. And he was wow. just a wonderful, wonderful person. But I think that's where that comes from that that type of you know let me let me see at a glance what's in here, and then and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it comes from something else. But it just made me think about. How he organized his classroom, and you would walk into the classroom, and there would be dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds i don't know, of these white boxes that were labeled on the front of of what was inside and everything hand typed and and then run off for each semester's uh, batch of students
1: oh wow, that's amazing yeah, good grief it it reminds me of a it reminds me of a teacher I had at seminary, very very similar, like where it was sort of all pooled. Everything was pulled from different places. It's that kind of like mm. collector's mentality. And you could just tell he soaked himself so thoroughly in so many books. That Oh, actually, i uh, um got it here. I can read you a little something from my book, actually. Yes, Is please. I write about him just for a page. You want that? Yes, um, please. Gosh, let me just see if I can find it. Hang on. not going to get any okay. trouble
0: with the author, are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Gosh, he's such a litigious pain in the ass, guys. Well, You never know. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Uh, here we go. Here we go. So, th- this is in a chapter on critique I'm giving, and I'm so sort of talking about this teacher who gave me critique, but this just sounds so similar to what you're saying. Um, I just say his name was Vic, and I deeply respected him. He was the man I wanted to grow into one day. He was intensely thoughtful, caring, and singular in his approach to teaching. He had a unique style of lecturing which usually saw him enter with a stack of books, each bookmarked with so many large scraps of roughly torn paper that he sometimes looked like a man who just retrieved his little library from a pile of pale leaf litter. He would walk in, sit on the edge of his desk and touch his fingers to his lips, deep in thought. Sometimes he would sit like that for a full minute, leaving the room in silence while we in turn waited uneasily for the awkward space to be filled and the lesson to begin." Sometimes the silence was only broken when he would look at us and frown and say, you know, I don't know where to start today. Then he might tell us a story about someone he saw on his walk to the seminary that morning. He might then pick up a book from his stack and read an excerpt to us. Then he might have asked the class a question to get us contributing before he launched into another story. When you were in the middle of these lectures, it was rarely clear how all these things connected, but we had learned to be patient. His seemingly random start to each session Uh, combined with his rambling approach to working out what he wanted to talk about, might justifiably leave the uninitiated thinking that this man was just winging it and was perennially unprepared. However, minutes before the bell to each class... Vic would drop one magical sentence and let it hang in the air, and suddenly every seemingly disparate story, quote, reading, and question he had laid about snapped into clarity. A single mind-altering perspective or thought, which would require days to chew on in order to plumb its depths, was left in in the place of everything that came before it. On his best days, he seemed like a magician to me, and every piece of the trick viewed in hindsight now appeared entirely necessary and in its rightful place. You might wonder, as I initially did, if it was all an act, but one visit to his book bestrewn office confirmed that this meandering method was just his way. It was near impossible to take notes in his lectures or neatly conceptualize what I was learning for the purposes of tests or exams, but I can confidently say that I've never learned more about life in such a short span of time than when sitting and listening to Vic teach.
0: Sounds like yeah. a very similar kind of... Very similar. Brilliant. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah I,
1: I just find those people amazing. It's like it, just, I do it too. just reminds me as well like like what you're saying like just soak yourself in as much as you possibly can as widely as you possibly can because it kind of leaves you able to access a ton of different things at a moment's notice when inspiration strikes. But if you don't soak in that stuff in your downtime you don't have anything to pull from in that moment you get that burst of energy when you want to do something. And and those people who you could just tell like, like, like your teacher who is typing out those stories from various books, because they connected with him. He's soaking in that stuff all the time and ready for when he gets in that conversation or that moment strikes in a class, or or he needs to pull that stuff. It's, it's in his brain ready to go. And that's, that's a, a, something creative people need to get better at. It's your, it's your plastic boxes ready to go. You know, it's, it's photographers who, watch films and pay attention to the cinematography it's 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 writers who who don't just read prose that they write but they read poetry it's it's yeah it's, uh, photographers who pay attention to painters like soak yourself in as much stuff as you can and be ready to pull from it
0: yeah 100 percent. i mean I, I i go back to the this story that wadman told on 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 taking pictures about uh Mazel. Where somebody, Jay was giving a workshop and, and you know, somebody that was attending the workshop uh, presented his portfolio and said, how can I take more interesting pictures? And without missing a beat, Jay just looked at him and said, become a more interesting person. <laughs> Great. <laughs>
1: but it's so true. I don't know why we think that, that whatever we make doesn't come straight out of who we are. And if we don't spend more time working on ourselves than we do on the tricks of our trade, we won't have anything to say. It's, right. it's it's so obvious when you take a step back and look at it, but how often do we get stuck in going? Ah, oh, but you know, I just need the perfect lens with the right filter, and then it's all going to come into focus, and then we get it, and we realize, no, I still don't know what to do with it. It's because we haven't worked on ourselves, and it sounds self-helpy and cliche, but but damn it, it's true. I don't know what to say. Like it is so true. Like uh, you know, you 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 have so much that comes out of you in your paintings because of what you've soaked yourself in the things that you think about during the day. And you almost don't have a choice. That's, of course, what's going to come out if if it's what you put in. So we have to be really aware of what we put in. And if we want our work to be rich, we have to put in a lot. I mean, it's why when I did that Werner Herzog um, filmmaking course, his best piece of advice for filmmakers is to read a lot. I mean, you're like, well, no, but hang on, when I'm doing a filmmaking course. Surely it's like to to get this camera and learn these techniques and learn blocking and watch films a lot. No, 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 read a lot and you'll be a better filmmaker. It's like, yeah, it sounds weird, but the more you think about it, no, that's obvious because I'm going to have a ton more to say. I'm going to be much more aware of life. I'm going to know more stories so that when it does come time to pick up a camera, which is just a technical skill that I can teach myself. He says at the beginning of the course, I could teach you how to shoot a film in two weeks. It's not complicated. right? But... To so have interesting things to say, you better read a ton because that's the only way you're going to get there. And I'm like, yeah, true. You have to be deliberate about what you put in and, and make sure that what you're putting in is as wide and as broad as possible, not just your very narrow genre you're engaged in. Or you might just be in danger of repeating what other people have done instead of innovating
0: because mm-hmm.
1: you're drawing from other sources. I, I buy that 100%. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that, that at least the people that I talk to, That's what they struggle with the most. It's not the technique. It's not the, the, the skill based portion of it that you can, let's be honest, learn from books or YouTube or just by trial and error. It's what do I want to say? What, why am I picking up this tool versus that tool? Why am I picking up a camera versus a paintbrush? Why am I sitting at a typewriter or a computer rather than becoming a character on stage or, or on screen? What is it that I'm trying to say? Yeah. You know, what is it that I want someone to bear witness to? That's the hard part. That's Mm -hmm. the hardest part, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Other than a parent, is there someone who's made a significant impact on or in your life? We'd love to hear about it. Send us an email or better yet, record us a voice memo on your phone and email it to deepnatter at gmail.com. Subscribe to Jeffrey Sedoris Everything in your favorite podcast app. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing and want to support the show, you can leave a review or a rating wherever you listen and share it on social media. Or if you'd like to support the show more directly, you can tap the donate button at jeffreysedoris.com. That's J E F F E R Y S A D D O R I S.com. And again, for those of you who have already contributed, thank you very much. It really does make a difference. You can connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck. That's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K on his website at seantucker.photography or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sidoris. As always, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it and we hope you'll come back for the next one.